0: Our first uh, pastor, leader, uh, friend of the Dakotas is Brian Autry. He is the executive director of the Southern Baptist Convention of Virginia, who has just recently begun a partnership with us, and we are very excited about that partnership. He is uh, married and has three kids, yeah. Yeah. and so uh, we appreciate him taking the time to be with us and being away from them. So thanks, Brian, for coming. Amen. And preach nice thank you. Well, thank you. Well, it's, it's good to be with you all today. I want to ask you if you have a Bible, I hope you do, if you find Revelation chapter 1, Revelation chapter 1. Today, I'm, I'm going to really, I, I hope it'll be a message of encouragement to you. I know your theme is strong and courageous and, and really, as we kind of start this time together, the goal of this is that you'll be encouraged and that you'll be encouraged to be an encourager to others. And let me just ask a question. How many here serve as pastors? Okay, a lot of pastors here. I know some wives and family members, and then friends and other leaders in the church. You know, there. I got thinking this morning about the things that I've heard at times that really were a discouragement to me as a pastor. And in 2002, I was privileged to be involved in planning a church, and uh, Doug and I kind of hit it off when I met him about a year and a half ago as well, and. And I think about the things that I heard in the midst of that ministry. I jotted a few down. I don't know if you've ever heard things like this on a, this is like right after your sermon, all right? Uh, Things like this. Wow, that was the best sleep I've ever had, if you've ever heard that before. Um, I love the illustration that you told. I have no idea what you were illustrating, but I love the illustration. I've heard that one before. Have you ever been asked this, Pastor? Can your wife play the piano? Your wife played the piano. I grew up in a church. One of my first memory of pastor is his wife, it's like she had to play the piano. And, of course, uh, most of us have been delivered from that. I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you. Someone come up right before you're going to preach and say, can I have a couple minutes to talk to you before you preach? They'll hit you with that one. Or maybe you've heard this one. After you've preached a sermon on a particular scripture, a person will come up to you and say, have you heard John Piper's sermon on that, on that text? He does a great job with it, or perhaps one of my favorites, so this to me would be the thing that I, I used to hear and don't know that I wanted to hear. I don't know if you've ever heard this or not. Person comes up to you and they say, I love this church. I think the music is wonderful. <laughs> you ever heard that one? Maybe your music's not all that good, so you might not hear that, but anyhow, um, Well, in Revelation chapter 1, in Revelation chapter 1, I want to take you back to this scripture, because in Revelation 1, I think this is a tremendous encouragement to us. Now, most pastors, if they're going to preach in the book of Revelation, they're going to preach what chapters? Two and three. They're usually going to preach chapter 2 and chapter 3. Now, most lay people in our churches... They want us to preach chapter 4 and the rest of it because they love prophecy. They want to hear about that. You want to get a crowd at your church, I have a suggestion for you. You just preach the book of Revelation. You will have people show up at your church. Now, when you're done, some of them are going to leave because they're going to go to the next prophecy conference. They're going to go to the next church preaching Revelation, but you'll get a crowd. But my favorite chapter, perhaps, of the book of Revelation has become chapter 1. Chapter 1. Because it is, to me, a tremendous chapter of encouragement. And that's what I want to share with you about today. Because in Revelation chapter 1, John here gets this vision. And I think in this first century vision, you and I have a word of encouragement for our 21st century ministry. And so as we get ready to look at this, let me say a word of prayer for us. Father, thank you for the opportunity to talk with one another, spend some time with each other as pastors and families that are serving in ministry. And Lord, today I pray that you will take this sermon and the sermons that are going to be preached and there will be a word of encouragement to us. Lord, I thank you for the times of the meals and the fellowship and the conversation because, Lord, we're here. And I pray, Lord, that each person will be reminded that we're not alone in ministry, that we stand together. And that you stand with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Revelation chapter 1, look with me starting in verse 9. We're going to walk through this together for a few minutes today. Here's what the Bible says in verse 1, I mean, chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. By the way, that's a good place to be on the Lord's day is in the Spirit. Amen? Amen. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. By the way, interesting here. We have a gathering of multiple churches here. This letter was to be sent not just to one church, but to a handful of churches. Back then, God was already thinking about more than just one church. He he knew there were going to be many churches and different types of churches, and he had a word of encouragement for him. And the Bible tells us in verse 11, saying this, Write what you see in a book and send it to seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Then look at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, and then he gives this description, and just consider this for a moment. Now, this is inerrant, inspired, holy scripture you're holding in your hand, and we're reading, right? But understand this, John is still captured within the finite limitation of his own mind and the limitation of human language. And in the next few verses, he's going to try to describe for us this indescribable vision in terms of... That he could recall in his own mind. And so he's going to give us this imagery. It says in the Bible, verse 13, that he was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. That the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes, listen to this, his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And this is what he says happened. Verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But, by the way, interesting study in Scripture is to Go to places in Scripture where this word but makes a big difference. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you've seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. And then he gives some explanation that's helpful. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now we find some encouragements here. We find some some insights to take to heart. And I want to just kind of highlight these for you. First of all, you go back up to verse 9. In my opinion, you don't have to go any further than just that verse. He says, I, John, he says, I'm your brother And I'm your partner. Or the King James says, I'm your companion. Now, when you think about this idea here, when he says... I am your brother. He doesn't say here in this description, he doesn't say, Hey, I'm your best friend. He doesn't say, Hey, I'm your, we're just uh, bosom buddies or we're just lodge brothers or something like that. No, he uses this specific word, and I think it highlights for us a relationship that we have in our churches and that we even have among us as a fellowship of churches, and it's found in that word, brother. And I want to just point out to you that we're family. We're family. When we were planting our church, Brother Doug, what we did is we often referred to our church not as Parkway Baptist Church, which was its technical name. We would call our church the Parkway Family. And I remember one time a lady who had really become friendly with my wife. We knew her well. Remember she made the comment one time. She said, well, you're always saying that we're a family, but we don't always love each other. We don't always care about each other. We're not always nice to each other. And how can you say we're a family? And I immediately responded to her, what family did you grow up in? I mean, I didn't say we're the Parkway Best, Best Friends Society. I mean, I said we're a family. There's a reason that we're a family. Because we've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been adopted into his family. Listen, we are family. Amen. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he uses, this phrase, he uses this word partner or companion. And I find it interesting that he couples them together. We're brothers and we're partners. And that that makes me think this. We're family, but we're also an army. We're also an army. Now, I don't want to be too militant for you today, but understand that we are here for a purpose. We are united, not as just a mutual friend society, but we are family, but we're also an army. We have a mission, and he describes it. He says there, in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, he says, I was on the island of Patmos. Listen. He's on this island that was designed to hold political prisoners of the Roman Empire. He has been exiled to this prison island. Now, by now, the Apostle John is an old, old man. He's been exiled there because they don't know what else to do with him. Tradition tells us that they had attempted to boil John in oil, but that he would not die. Now, I, don't, I can't imagine what his appearance would have been. I, couldn't, I can't imagine what his state of health would have been. But he makes the point here. He says this. He says, I'm your partner in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Listen, the book of Revelation was and is still today a word for the hurting dying persecuted church now where i live oftentimes people when they're teaching the book of revelation nothing wrong with this they'll they'll come up with their systems and they'll come up with their charts and they'll have their posters and it's as if the book of revelation is just some type of scientific study understand this the book of revelation was written and was sent to people who were enduring incredible hardship persecution, and they had two goals for their church. They had two goals for their fellowship of churches, and it was simply this. I wrote these down, endurance and obedience. You want to know two simple goals for us as brothers, sisters, partners? It's simply this, endurance and obedience. When I think about the planting of churches, when I think about the revitalization of churches, understand this, this is a spiritual battle we're in. The evil one, the devil himself, listen, he does not want your marriage to succeed. He doesn't want you to live. He doesn't want your church to survive, much less thrive. He wants to shut down your fellowship of churches. He wants the whole image of who you are, what you stand for, what you say. He wants to destroy it. If you're blessed to have a church building, his goal for that facility is for it to be boarded up or turned into a museum or sold off to somebody else. It's not for it to be a place of worship. If you're planting a church, he wants you to give up. He wants you to be frustrated. He wants you to cash it in. Goals for us, endurance, obedience. That's what the Apostle John is signaling to these people who are going to receive this incredible apocalyptic revelation. So what are some some things that become apparent? Well, first of all, in verse 12 and following, I'm captured by his description of the Lord Jesus. And I I just simply wrote down today that I hope that you and I will see the glorious Christ. I believe if you today can just be reminded to put your eyes upon the glory of Jesus Christ wherever you may find yourself, Whatever situation you may be in, perhaps you'll look at it a little bit different. Today, just look with me for a few minutes at the glorious Christ that you and I worship and serve. The Bible here gives us the description. In verse 13, we're told that He is like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around His chest. Six of the seven times in the Old Testament, this would have been a reference to the high priest. And I simply point out to you right now that the Jesus that you preach, the Jesus you serve, the Jesus that you worship is our ultimate high priest. He is in the Holy of Holies representing you, advocating for you. He is the one who has paid for our sins once and for all. This is the Jesus that we serve. He is the high priest. He is the judge king. He is the Lord of lords, king of kings. Amen? he 's the high priest he 's clothed in that robe. he sees that golden sash around his chest. verse fourteen. the hairs of his head were white like white wool like snow. now this reminds me for instance of in the book of daniel where where we 're told about the ancient of days and when 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 John saw this, you know he must have seen there represented in Jesus the maturity, the dignity of the lord jesus christ i also I think about isaiah where we 're Where we read about the purity, white like snow. You see, understand this the Lord Jesus, in all his glory, he's absolutely mature. He is absolutely pure, full of wisdom. The hairs of his head were white like wool. You read on in verse 14, you read about his eyes. Eyes were like a flame of fire. I just, I can't help but think about like Superman, for instance. And Superman has that x-ray vision and he could see all and he can do all and all that. Well, understand this. No one compares to the Lord Jesus. The picture here is that Jesus has this penetrating vision. Listen, no one can pull anything over on the Lord Jesus. He is absolutely able to see through the schemes and the wiles of man and, and the evil one himself. This x-ray vision is what I picture here. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. This picture's here, tremendous stability and strength that the Lord Jesus has. I'm from Virginia, and I live about two hours south of Washington, D.C., and Washington is a city of bronze and marble and stone, and if you're ever there, if you've never been, a place that is a must-see is you must go to the Lincoln Memorial. And when you walk in there, you will see Abraham Lincoln immortalized, so to speak, in this huge monster statue with humongous feet. The picture that John must have seen here, it's as if he's just grappling with how to describe to us that Jesus is the epitome of strength and stability. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church you serve. Jesus is the one who is the firm foundation of the church that you and I serve. And so when those days come, when we face discouragement, when we wrestle with how we're going to lead and serve and stay vigilant in the ministry we're assigned, understand this, Jesus is on His throne. He is strong, stable. His feet, it says, were like burnished bronze. And then His voice His voice like the roar of many waters. A few weeks ago for our summer vacation, we made our way up through uh, the mid-Atlantic, up into the Northeast, into New York City, and we were headed all the way over to Michigan. We were kind of taking a scenic tour, and we stopped off at Niagara Falls. Now, I had been been to Niagara Falls a couple times before, but my wife and our children had never been. And so I very much wanted them to see this really wonder of the natural world. But I was a little bit kind of nervous about how my children were going to respond to it. Were they going to be impressed or not? Now, I had taken some youth groups who I'd done mission work with to see Niagara Falls, and they had been impressed. But listen, my children, well, they're kind of suburbanite kids. They've been to theme parks. They've been and seen a lot of things. My oldest daughters traveled overseas on some mission trips. So, They've seen a lot of things, and I was just kind of wondering, were they going to be all that impressed with this water? And so we got there, and I kind of had that nervous feeling in my stomach, like dads can get sometimes when you have planned this trip, and you're kind of wondering, you know, are you going to, are you going to score as a dad here? And, and I remember we got to the hotel, and we, uh, and we unpacked our stuff, and we decided to walk towards Niagara Falls. And we walk down the road, and we hang a left, and we cross over this bridge, and there's a small little waterfall there, and they see that, and they're impressed. Well, needless to say, I got pretty excited because if they were impressed with that, I had to show them Horseshoe Falls. And We made our way around the turn. You could begin to see the spray coming off. You could begin to hear it. What is that, Dad? Let me show you what that is. For the next day and a half, my children didn't ask me about which video game they could play. They didn't ask me about which TV show they could watch. These children... 7, 12, and 15, girl, boy, girl, wanted to stand as close as they could get to that waterfall and watch it and listen to it, they were absolutely mesmerized by it. The morning we got up, I'm thinking, if they're impressed with that, wait till we put them on that boat called "Made of the Mist, and we ride up down to the bottom of it, and they get wet all over, and they were impressed with that too. You see, friends, The picture here of Jesus is with this voice, this this authority, this power. You go near Niagara, you'll see all these power lines and this massive power grid because they draw all this power off of that rushing river. Jesus is the one in whom the power to redeem and save mankind rests. He is pictured here as absolutely powerful, strong, stable, amazing. It says, it says then, In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. That just makes me think about how the Word of God, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. You know, the Word of God cuts both ways. It convicts and it comforts, but that's what we teach. That's what your neighbors, that's what the nations, that's what folks in North and South Dakota, that's what folks in Virginia and Texas and all different places people in this room are from, they need the Word of God. Jesus has entrusted this Word to you. The Bible then goes on and tells us, listen to this, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. That just kind of reminds me there of the Mount, Mount Transfiguration. The picture here of the radiance of the very glory of God shining from his face. I simply today want to remind us and point us to this vision This vision that took place in the first century, we need to remember and see in the 21st century. Understand this Jesus, the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man, here, John sees him in all his glory. He is the glorious Christ. This is the Jesus you preach, the Jesus you serve, the Jesus you worship. You know, I think about how people, especially the time of year we're moving towards, moving towards Christmas, and people where I live, I assume people here, you know, they'll celebrate Christmas. They'll put up Christmas trees. Most folks don't have a problem with baby Jesus. We're okay with baby Jesus. There's just an issue. Jesus isn't a baby anymore. Jesus isn't 12-year-old, 12, 12 years old in the temple anymore. Jesus isn't 30-some-year-old master teacher anymore. No, understand this. Jesus is the ancient of days. He is the same yesterday, today and forever. This is a picture of the glorious Christ. This is the Jesus that you represent to the world. This is the Jesus you proclaim. Let that encourage you as you stand in your pulpits, as you serve, as you work, sharing the gospel. But do we really get who Jesus is? We need to see him. We need, we need to gaze at his greatness. We need to stop for a moment and just see his sovereignty. Look at his lordship for a few moments while you're on this trip. You know, I came across this quote. Thinking about talking to church leaders here. Vance Havner He gave this warning to ministries. I just just came across this this morning, and I thought, I'll pass this on. It kind of seems to fit. Vance Havner warned, ministries go through four stages. There's a man, there's a movement, then there's a machine, and then there's a monument. When I read that, I thought, you know what? Our church is half to get back to Jesus. We need that movement. That's kind of where we need to live. Focusing on the master and praying for a movement. Starts with seeing the glorious Christ. But then then I just want you to notice where he is. where, Where Jesus is. Now you have to kind of go back up for a minute. Go back up. You go back up here to verse 10 or so back towards the beginning. And it says here. I was in the spirit of the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Okay, you get that part, right? Well, then look down at verse 12. He sees them, them symbolized as golden lampstands. We know now because of verse 20 that the lampstands are the seven churches. But look at verse 13. I just kind of skipped over that. In the midst or in the middle of the lampstands was one like a son of man. Where is Jesus? Where does he see Jesus? He sees Jesus in the midst of the lampstands and the lampstands are the churches. So where's Jesus? In the midst of the churches. In the midst of the churches. Maybe it's just me or maybe it's just my simple mind. I love that thought. Where's Jesus? He's right in the middle of his churches. Now some of us some of us want to be delivered from our churches because they're in a mess. And we pray for Jesus to get us out of a mess. You have people in your churches whose lives are in a mess, and they want Jesus to deliver from that mess. But I heard someone say one time, listen, Jesus Jesus sometimes doesn't take you out of a mess. Sometimes Jesus just gets in a mess with you. Right. <laughs> you think your church is in a mess. Well, I just want you to understand this. Jesus is in the midst with you. He's right there in the midst of these churches. So that just makes me think that, listen, we're his victorious churches. Listen, we've seen this glorious vision of who Christ is. Understand this. That ought to encourage us that we're His victorious churches. Why are we victorious? How can we be victorious? Now, you go on, and if you study chapters 2 and 3, you'll read about these seven churches and their different situations. But simply understand this that Jesus had a message of victory for these churches. Well, for one thing, I think we're victorious because He wrote to us. He tells John, Write these things down. Understand this, you're not flying blind. You have the written word of God. We were talking there in the panel talking about conflict and all that. And I just thought about, you know, sometimes what we dicker about in church are matters of preference. Is it going to be a red pew or a blue pew? Is it going to be chicken or ham? Some of this stuff you just got to use some common sense with, all right? Not every mountain is a hill to die on, all right? You get that. But understand this. Some things are plain and simple and black and white. And God has given us his written word. That's why we can have confidence when we preach. Because, listen, he wrote to us. And then secondly, we're victorious because he's right here with us. You're not alone. And then understand the picture of this lampstand. I almost took the lamp out of my room to bring it and give you a visual aid. But I just didn't want to have to mess with trying to remember to put it back. I want you to picture this idea of lampstand. Lampstand. That's the promise that he's going to work through us. What's the purpose of a lampstand? What's a lampstand do? Think about it. A lampstand really has one purpose. It's not to be pretty, even though sometimes we buy them to be pretty. It is to do what? It holds up what? It simply holds up the light. Your church's purpose is simply to hold up Jesus so a dark world can see the light. But what does a lampstand do if it's not doing its purpose? It basically does one thing. It just collects dust. And it's time for our churches to understand that Christ intends for us to be victorious and to dust ourselves off and hold up that light. So I think you see here the glorious Christ. You see these victorious churches. And then I just want you to see an obvious response. Verse 17, when he saw him, he says, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me. Saying, Fear not, I'm the first and the last. Now, remember, this is John we're talking about here. When Jesus ate his last meal at the Last Supper there, right before the crucifixion, you know who was sitting right there next to him was John, right? Remember how John? John was like cuddled up with him. John had his arm around him, kind of rest his head up on. I have this theory that that perhaps some. I've heard some say Lazarus was probably one of Jesus' best earthly friends. I think John had to be in the running. I'll prove it to you a little bit. At the crucifixion, who did Jesus ask to take care of his mama? John. I don't know about you. I think that's a pretty good friend. Jesus is there hanging on a cross, feeling all the pain and suffering for all the sins of the world. And he looks at John and says, take care of my mama. But when John sees Jesus on this day, probably about 50 years later, John falls down as if he's dead. And that reminds me of the response that I ought to bring to Jesus. And this this goes deeper than me being a pastor because the risk we can run as ministers of the gospel is familiarity. And as an old Navy guy told me one time, familiarity breeds contempt. Contempt. He said, don't get, you know, listen, we can get so familiar. Sometimes we just forget who Jesus is. Understand this. Here's here's my response. I fall down in worship. That's, I fall down in worship. John, at the beginning here, he says, I'm a servant. I'm a slave of Jesus. We're brothers. We're partners. But we're servants, too, of Jesus. He falls down in worship. but But then Jesus says, hey, he does two things. He touches him. And he talks to him. He touches him with his right hand. That's the hand of authority. He touches him with his right hand and says, hey, you don't, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. He touches him and he talks with him. That's your Jesus. That's your Lord Jesus, pastor. Dear lady, that's your Jesus. You don't have to be afraid. And then he goes into this reminder of the gospel death, burial, resurvec- uh, resurrection. I hold the keys of death and Hades. And then he gives them assignment. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. He falls down in worship, but then he's told to rise up and to give witness. Ladies and gentlemen, we fall down in worship, But it's time to rise up and be his witnesses. when When I think about this, I think about my friend Ronnie. Ronnie was one of the first adults I baptized when we were planting our church. And he would be the last funeral I would do as pastor of that church. I remember being in his hospital room. He was dying of cancer. I remember just being overwhelmed at the sight of him. He seemed like he was out of it. And I just became overwhelmed with the thought that any minute now, this friend of mine who had heard me preach, who had served our church, who had had this transformation in his life, was getting ready in perhaps the twinkling of an eye to be in the very presence and to see the glory of Jesus in a way that I could only dream of. And I don't know what overcome me, but I, I just I just got up there on the bed with him and I picked him up in my arms. His it's kind of embarrassing, his wife and his mom and all of them were standing behind me. And I just got up really close to him and I just I just started crying. And I just said, Ronnie, you're getting ready to see Jesus. And this is probably bad theology, pastors and all this, stuff, but I just I just said. When you see Jesus, would you tell him this? I just did. That was crazy, but I just did. I could pray to Jesus. I get that. But I was like, Ronnie, but it, I was over. He's getting ready to see, be like right there. You know what I'm saying? And I just was crying, and I just said, Ronnie, when you see Jesus, tell him this. And just, it's, you know—and and all of a sudden, he opens his eyes, and he goes, am I going? Am I going? <laughs> and, I, and I backed up, and, I, and he goes, he looks at me and goes, Brian, you scared me to death, man. He said, I thought I was going right then. You know, I hear you praying and crying. And... He had a great sense of humor. Here's the thing. That's the last time I'd ever get to talk to him. He died the next day. I got there 15 minutes after he died. But Ronnie, this guy like people in your church, in your neighborhood, who listens to you preach and serve and they serve with you, the day comes that they, like we will one day, see the glory, the glorious Christ. But John reminds us that just because it's hard to see it sometimes right now, don't miss it. That is reality right now. So you be victorious. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity just to be reminded and encouraged of how glorious you are, Jesus. Lord, thank you that you proclaim us as your victorious churches. Lord, my response is therefore very obvious. May I be a brother, may I be a partner, may I be a servant. May I fall down in worship, but may I hear you when you say, rise up and be my witness. May we be encouraged, and may we take this vision and encourage those whom we're allowed to serve. In Jesus' name, amen.